0: Well, I would invite you to open uh, your Bible to Psalm 19. This would be our last uh, Sunday in this psalm, Lord willing. And uh, as you're turning there, most of you have probably heard about uh, the school shooting that took place in uh, Uvalde, Texas uh, at the beginning of this month on June 2nd. There were 14... I'm sorry. There were 19 fourth graders and two teachers uh, killed. And the, the the timeline of the uh, events that day showed that the a uh, a teacher at the school called 911 uh, at about 11:30 in the morning. Uh, and uh, the teacher called 911 uh, because they saw a Uh, A car crashed outside of the school, and a man with a gun got out of the car. So the teacher immediately got on the phone and called 911. At uh, 11.33, the man entered the school through a back door, which was somehow left unlocked, and uh, he fired uh, 100 rounds into two adjoining classrooms. At 11.35, uh, the police were on the scene. They, they were there within five minutes, but they entered the building, uh, engaged the shooter, and they retreated uh, when uh, they were fired upon by the shooter. And I won 't go through all of the, the details of the, the timeline. You can uh, find it online if you'd like all the details. but ultimately, the police didn't enter the building uh, to confront the shooter until 1246, so over an hour. Uh, of uh, parents, uh, family members, and, and others uh, in the community waiting outside with the police, begging and pleading with the police to to go in and act it would be a very long hour there 's a lot of things that go on in a situation like this, and it 's easy to to look back in hindsight. but you know now the, the authorities are under, coming under significant criticism for waiting so long to move usually in an, in an active shooter situation you want to kind of go in as soon as you can rather than letting the the shooter get sit, set up and a variety of things but this was a this was an urgent situation and a response was needed quickly and ultimately no response was a response and while you and i are not confronted with uh life-threatening situations like this on a day-to-day basis i'm very thankful for that we need to Appreciate our law enforcement officers. I don't want to have to make a decision like that. But you and I are confronted with urgent situations, not life and death, but significant situations that demand a response. And sometimes we don't know what to do uh, or, or when to do it or how to do it. We don't know how to respond. And that's, uh, that's the beauty and the wisdom of God's Word because it teaches us how to respond to the situations of life. Situations like, how will I respond to my spouse when they speak in anger? What will I do when my child doesn't obey? How will I respond to uh, difficult circumstances at work? How will I uh, respond to that internal temptation to sin? What will I do after I've sinned? Will I confess? Will I conceal? How will I respond to uh, bad news from my doctor? All of these are are situations in life that that come up, uh, and the way that we respond uh, or don't respond is going to have a a tremendous uh, impact. And if we don't respond when we should or how we should, heartache will follow. Again, God's Word teaches us how to respond to the circumstances of life. And in this uh, psalm, uh, Psalm 19, we spent the last four weeks working through it. We're coming to the end of the psalm now. And this is really where David is, uh, is now turning his thoughts, turning his meditation to, to how he should respond to everything that he has already uh, talked about. If you look at the, the big picture of this psalm, uh, we, we see that uh, uh, David uh, in verses uh, 1 through 4, or the, or the first uh, couple lines of verse 4, uh, he spoke about uh, the heavens, uh, God's creation, and what God has revealed uh, in uh, the world around us. Uh, and then there's a little phrase that begins that last line, the third line in verse 4. It says, In them he has placed a tent for the sun, uh, in them speaking about the heavens. Uh, what has God done in the heavens? He, he's pitched a tent for the sun so that the sun would be on display uh, and he 's placed uh, the sun in the heavens, and that 's where uh, the sun is to to move and to operate and there 's a, a similar pattern in the, in the next portion of the psalm and verses seven through ten uh, David emphasizes or focuses upon a different form of revelation, no longer general revelation, but special revelation god 's written word. We looked at that last Sunday, verses seven through ten. Uh, where he spoke poetically about what God's word is able to do. Uh, but then there's a little phrase uh, at the beginning uh, of uh, verse 11. It says, Moreover, by them, speaking of the scriptures, uh, your slave is warned. The same uh, Hebrew phrase is what we saw in verse, uh, the last line of verse 4. There's a, a parallelism to be drawn here. So in the heavens, God has placed the sun, and the sun operates there. Uh, and uh, in the scriptures, uh, he has placed uh, his people, uh, the, the servant uh, of Yahweh. Uh, and by the, the word of God, uh, the people of God are going to be warned. Uh, we are going to be taught. We are going to be instructed. Uh, uh, in the scriptures, God has placed a tent for his people to live in and to live by. That's all of God's uh, or David's meditation uh, upon, uh, the revelation of God in the scriptures. Uh, and now in verses 11 through 14, he's really going to, he's going to turn his mind. He's going to turn his attention uh, to how he should uh, respond to the written word of God, right? If this is where God has placed his people to, to live uh, and dwell, uh, how should we respond to that? He's going to contemplate how the word functions uh, in his life. And then he's going to pray for God to, to help him to respond to, uh, god's word uh, and as we we study this uh, psalm david's response uh, to god and his word is going to be a model for us to follow it's going to be an example that god is holding up so you can think of it this way god is instructing uh, us his people uh how to respond to his word uh, and he's doing that through his word uh, and he's doing that through uh, another uh, old testament saint uh, showing us the way so how should we respond to god's word can be really three three steps in this response process and the, uh, and the first step must come first but then steps two and three can be in uh, in any order but look with me uh, verses 11 through 14 we can we can read them together it says moreover by them your slave is warned in keeping them there is great reward who can discern his errors Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pause and pray. God, you are our creator. You are the one whom we are accountable to. And each and every one of us must uh, give an account to you for all of the moments of our life, for all of the the time that we have spent here, for all of the, the treasures that you have entrusted to us, all of our gifts and talents and abilities. We must one day stand before you and give an account and so as we study uh, this prayer of David, as we study how to respond to your word, I pray that we would respond rightly. That your word would have its desired effect upon our hearts, upon our minds, upon our lives. That you would use this study of your word uh, to make us more and more like your son. May we see him and behold him. And may you loom ever larger uh, in our lives as a result of what we study here this morning. And may you bless the proclamation of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, there, there are three steps to be found here uh, as David uh, contemplates how to respond to the word of God. And the first one is found in verse 11. We could say that we uh, must uh, know what is to be found in Yahweh's word. We must know what is to be found in Yahweh's word. and. And in this verse, David is emphasizing how God's word is to operate in the life of God's people. It says, "Moreover, by them, your slave is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward." Uh, and David's going to uh, to mention uh, two specific things: warnings and wages. He mentions warnings. He says, by them, your slave is from the translation that I'm reading in. But the the, the ESV and the NASB and most other English translations uh, translate that word as servants. And the emphasis is really just expressing the position of men in relationship to God. Uh, And the focus is sometimes uh, upon uh, man just being a, a servant of God. Sometimes it's more upon the idea of being a slave before God. And the reality here is what David is, is doing is he is aligning himself under God, under God's authority. Right? He's saying, God, you are my master. You are the one who directs my steps and my ways. You are the one who gives me my marching orders. Uh, and it is God, through his word, who, who instructs uh, the, his uh, servants, uh, his people. Uh, And specifically, the word of God issues warnings uh, to those who serve God. And the word of of warning here carries the idea of uh, uh, illuminating, of shining a light in the darkness. Uh, And and the context that follows uh, would seem to indicate and make clear that these warnings are against sin and the spiritual dangers uh, and suffering that sin brings. The sin uh, loves to to show uh, forth uh, its its benefits. It loves to to emphasize the, the the pleasures of sin. And if we're going to be honest, uh, sin does bring pleasure. Right. But how long does that last? Oh, just a just a short, short period of time. Uh, and then after you have the, the fleeting pleasure of sin, what happens? Misery, heartache, regret. One of the Puritans says that that sin, uh, or what Satan does, is he he shows the bait and hides the hook of sin. Uh, He uh, he shows us a a glittering, gleaming cup, uh, but there's poison in the cup. Uh, That's what we have to to see, and we see and we are warned about the dangers of sin and the heartache that it brings uh, in the Word of God. We are uh, warned in that way, but we also see, and what David emphasizes, is that there are uh, wages uh, that are seen also in the word of God. He says, in keeping them, speaking of the scriptures, there is great reward. Uh, and the word for reward is really just the word for results, uh, the idea of uh, consequences. Uh, the, the idea of wages of what you earn uh, from doing something else and this is uh, not at all teaching uh, that we earn our salvation it's not saying that the wages uh, that you earn by obedience is uh, getting up uh, salvation in heaven now, on the contrary our salvation is uh, by grace alone uh, through faith alone in the finished work of christ alone What this is saying is that doing things God's way, according to his word, is going to lead to uh, natural blessings and reward in this life. It's the harvest principle, right? You will reap what you sow. What you plant is what you are going to harvest. That's what we see in Galatians 6. Uh, Proverbs 22, 4 says the reward, uh, there's our word, of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And sometimes there are uh, wages, there are rewards for obedience. Sometimes God will reward uh, his people for being faithful and obedient to him. Uh, but there are other times where uh, the, 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 uh, there are wages in obedience, that simply doing what God has commanded will bring joy and satisfaction. And uh, the rewards that are spoken of here are not the, it's not a, a cash uh Prize. You're not going to uh, go down to uh, Jackson's or um, uh, you know, the stinker store and say, hey, I have this coupon, I have this obedience card with God, and you know what can I redeem here? Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The, the type of rewards that are spoken of uh, are far more significant. Uh, rewards in this life and in the life to come. Uh, but some of it is just the natural fruit of yeah, having peace within your home. Now, doing things God's way is going to to bring those things about relational harmony. Uh, And uh, that's the the emphasis here. In keeping the the word of God, there is great reward. There is uh, warnings and there are wages. And we need both of these. Now, which one do we naturally want more? Right? I'll take a little bit less warning and a little bit more wages, a little bit more rewards. Right? But we need both. Uh, and, and we need the warnings of Scripture desperately for two reasons. Say, so number one, uh, to quote Paul Tripp, that we, we are blind to our blind spots. Okay? We don't know what we don't know. Uh, and we need, uh, at times, uh, the community of believers to come alongside uh, and help us to see clearly. But also, we need the Word of God, the illumination that God's Word brings to, sh- to see our lives Clearly, James uh, chapter one uh, pictures uh, the word of God as a mirror. Listen to what it says. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The scriptures show us who we truly are and we can either uh, respond and say, oh, I got to I got to fix that. Or we just walk away unchanged uh, But the scriptures will, will show us what is true and real in our life and in our character And we need god's word to show us our blind spots But we need the warnings uh, Even more so because we don't usually like to be warned Right we don't like to to heed the warnings of others But we need it desperately I have a kind of a, a running joke uh, with my wife and some other friends, talking about a true friend will tell you when there's something in your teeth, right? A true friend won't just let you go around and walk around with a big piece of spinach right there. They'll say, "Oh, you know what? I think you should. You got yeah, or something right there. And you got to do that. No, the other side. Mm, 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 you know, uh, all of those things. But that's what a true friend will do." They will will pull you aside and say, hey, you need to examine uh, and and fix that real quick. How much more, if we appreciate when a friend does that and saves us future embarrassment, how much more should we appreciate when God's word, as we're reading it, shows us what is taking place in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives? It says, oh, you, you have something right there. You got a little smudge that needs to be shined up. You actually have this growth over here. That just needs to be amputated. Just take that off completely. That's what God's word does. So in that sense, the word of God is the truest friend you could ever have. Tells you when you are in great spiritual danger. Shows you your sin, your true character. Teaches you how you should walk in relationship with God. But once we... Once we know what is to be found in God's Word, its, its warnings and its wages, then what do we do? We, we can know something intellectually, but then we, we must uh, namely put on faith. We must uh, convince ourselves and, and trust ourselves to the, the truth and the, the warnings of God's Word. But how do we put on faith? When we see something in our hearts and our lives that needs to, to change, that needs to be taken out... What do we do? Well, we can begin to pray ahead of time. Would encourage you all uh, have a prayer list, not only to pray for others, but to pray for your own soul. These are the things that I need to, to work on, these are the things that I need to address. Lord, help me to respond with patience to my spouse, to my children, to my coworker who annoys me to death. Right? Help me to respond well. Help me to honor and glorify you. We pray ahead of time. We take thoughts captive in the moment. That once you've been praying about something, I'm praying for for patience to respond well to my wife, uh, and then suddenly a situation pops up where I have the opportunity uh, to be patient with my wife. What what am I going to recall and remember in that moment? Oh yeah, I've been praying about this. This is what I've been asking for. Now, what am I going to do? I need to take that thought captive and respond with patience. I need to put on obedience in the moment. I need to pray in the moment. Okay, Lord, help me to to do what I have already been praying about, what I know I ought to do. David uh, begins here in Psalm 19, verse 11, in this final section, he's emphasizing what, what he knows and what we need to know, that in the Word of God we are warned and we are promised great reward, great wages. But then he's going to now put all of this into practice uh, through really what I just said. Uh, In in the remainder of this uh, psalm, we're going to see David praying ahead of time. He's going to be saying, okay, Lord, help me to respond. If uh, if your word gives me warnings, help me to respond to those warnings. We see this in verses 12 and 13. The second uh, step of response. We have to know, then we have to appropriate faith. Could say that we are to respond in faith to the warnings by praying against sin. If you look at me again at those verses. Verse twelve begins: "Who can discern his errors?" Now that's more of a uh, that's more of an exclamation than a question. Right, and the emphasis is uh, there are there are some sins that we don't even realize that we are committing. Right? Do you know all of the, the mistakes that you've made, all of the sins that you have committed? Does anybody? No. And as, as you read these verses, you get a sense of, of David's uh, unworthiness, of his own understanding of his own sinfulness. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. In that first line, it is more of a lament because David realizes that there's, he needs God's help to be able to see the extent of his full sinfulness. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. If we had eyes like those of God, we should think very differently of ourselves. The transgressions which we see and confess are but like the farmer's small samples which he brings to market when he has left his granary, granary full at home. We have but a few sins which we can observe and detect compared with those which are hidden from ourselves and unseen by our fellow creatures. And this is what David is is realizing, and this is what he is praying against. He says, Lord, I know they're there, I just don't know that what they are or where they are, or how to deal with them. But you see me fully and completely. David knows that he has unknown unintentional sins and he's praying for God uh, to cleanse him of those sins uh, and to forgive him for those sins. And, And he, he does this because he understands that if he doesn't begin to see and address those hidden sins that are there growing underneath the surface in his heart, they they're going to uh, grow in strength. Uh, that they're going to grow in power and influence over his heart and over his life, and they will harden his heart. And so David then prays for something more. says acquit me of hidden faults? Then verse thirteen. Also keep back your slave, your servant, from presumptuous sins. What is a presumptuous sin? If you turn back with me to Numbers chapter fifteen. You'll see uh, this uh, commanded, and then you'll see a, an illustration of what a presumptuous sin looks like. Numbers 15, beginning in verse 27. Moses writes also, If one person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring near a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before Yahweh for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be pardoned. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the sojourner who sojourns among them. So if you sin unintentionally without realizing it, there is there's forgiveness. There, there is pardon to be had. You go and offer this sacrifice and you will be cleansed. But then there's a contrast in verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, that one is blaspheming Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. And then there's a little narrative portion right here. Verse 32, now the sons of Israel were in the wilderness and they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him near to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had had not been declared what should be done to him. And Yahweh said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him and stone with stones outside the camp. And so all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. There's presumptuous sin. The man knew and understand, understood that he had been directly commanded not to do something. He wasn't supposed to go and gather on the Sabbath, but he did. It was a uh, a flouting of God's authority. One of the, the English Puritans, a man named Robert Sanderson, organized sin into three categories. Now, all of them are, are sinful, but they're, they're helpful in our discussion uh, here for different ways and different reasons. It says there are, there are some sins of, of ignorance where, where the main issue for our sin is that of uh, misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge. He gives this example of Saul persecuting Christians in the early church a grievous sin but one committed in ignorance because he did not know the truth about jesus but once he knew what did he do he turned and he repented Uh, a second category would be sins of infirmity the main issue is one of uh, affection uh, or being momentarily overcome by emotion fear anger joy okay Uh, and peter's uh, denial of Christ. Uh, on uh, the night that Jesus was arrested is an example of this, right? Jesus who had been there or Peter who had been there, as we'll see when we get back to, to John 13, Jesus, I will die with you and I will die for you. Jesus says, no, no, you're going to abandon me. And that is exactly what happens. The soldiers come in the garden of Gethsemane. And what does Peter do? He tries to save Jesus, cuts off uh, a servant's ear, but then he and all of the others scatter they run out of fear there are some some sins of infirmity but then there's a a third category you could say sins of presumption right there is an an understanding uh, that what is uh, being done is sinful and the person is not being carried away by emotions and an example of this is david's murder of uriah bathsheba's husband He was not carried carried out in ignorance. David knew the law, right? He knew that he wasn't supposed to conspire to to murder one of his mighty men. And it was not a spur-of-the-moment act when when David was caught up in anger. This was premeditated. It was was conducted with forethought and malice. That's a, a sin of presumption. And there is a, a progression here to David's prayer. There's a progression to what David is concerned with here. Right? He begins with the sins that he doesn't know about. He says, Lord, help me to address those. Then he says, Lord, help me to, to address uh, sins of, of pride, sins of presumption in my heart and in my life, sins that uh, if uh, left unaddressed will begin to rule over a person. But then there's something that, that David is even more worried about. And he prays for God to, to help him to, to fight and to address uh, the unknown sins and the presumptuous sins. He says, let not these sins rule over me. And if he, if he fights the battle against those sins uh, when they are hidden and before they grow to presumption, and then if he fights the battle against those presumptuous sins, then he will be blameless. And then he says, I, will, I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Uh, and uh, that uh, term for, for great transgression is unique in some uh, debate on what that is referring to. The idea is of significant or uh, very serious crimes. Uh, and I think what David has in mind here uh, is the idea of completely falling away. To the idea of uh, apostasy. Uh, and he saw that in the king who came before him. The king saw uh, and and the, the road to apostasy, the road to denying uh, and falling away from Christ uh, is a, a road that slopes gradually downward. And Anybody who arrives at, at the bottom has already passed by these earlier sins, the, the hidden unknown sins and the sins of presumption. You, you pass by those before you get to apostasy. And that's where David is saying, Lord, help me to address things up here so I never end up all the way at the bottom of this hill. And we might rightly understand our own propensity towards sin. We have to see that any one of us, any one of us, can fall down that slope. We all have a tendency towards sin. And we have to view ourselves as being capable of falling into any sin. Sometimes we think about ourselves in this way. Well, I would never, right? And then you fill in the blank, right? You're, you're baffled at how somebody else could commit some sin. And, and you say, well, I would never do that. How could they ever do that? Well, even in your own mind, what's taking place? Someone's being looked down upon and someone is being elevated. And who is it that's being elevated? You. You're saying, I would never do that. I could never do that. No, you might. That's what you need to see. That's what you need to be convinced of. It is a prideful error to think, well, I would never. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. The Bible never wants us to use its assurances to avoid its warnings. What he's saying is that, yeah, yes, we have the assurance that God will, uh, if we are genuine believers, that we will continue in the faith. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we can disregard the warnings of danger. The Bible never wants us to use its assurances to avoid its warnings. And if the believer does not commit apostasy, it is precisely because he fears it and cries out to God to save him from it. It is alarm over apostasy that God uses to keep you from it. And if you think it cannot touch you, If you suppose that you are somehow above it, you are already on your way to it. Now, about every year, there's some big celebrity Christian or some celebrity pastor that appears in the news. And why do they appear in the news? Well, what is newsworthy? They have decided that they're no longer going to follow Christ, they have had a change of mind. And what do they reveal? I've been wrestling with this for a long time. Where was it not addressed? The hidden unknown level. Where was it not addressed? At the the level of presumptuous sins. They continue in it and it leads to falling away completely. And writing to uh, Christians who are tempted to to turn back to Old Testament Judaism, the author of Hebrews, I invite you to turn with me there, Warns uh, his audience Uh, over the the course of the letter. There are five warning passages. Hey, you need to take this seriously. We'll look at two of the warning passages. The first in Hebrews chapter three, beginning of a a warning passage of warning of uh, disobedience and unbelief begins in chapter 3, verse 12. It says, See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you... That's an exact number, right? Who is this meant for? Not any one of them, any one of us. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another... Day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, that's what David understands. There is sin in his heart and in his life, and it's left unaddressed. It's going to, to work to harden his heart. It's going to work to deceive him. Rationalizing, oh, it's okay. But later on in the book of Hebrews... There's an even stronger warning. If you turn with me to chapter 10, the title in the, the LSB version that I'm reading from it says, The Warning Against Willful Sin. So that the warnings in the book of Hebrews get stronger and stronger. This is the fourth of five. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully, presumptuous sin, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And the author is going to point backwards. Uh, he's going to argue from, from lesser to greater. So look, look at what was in the Old Testament. So anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Right, So if you acted presumptuously in the Old Testament, uh, you were judged immediately, as we saw in Numbers 15. Verse 29 in Hebrews 10 says, How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the emphasis to these uh, Christians is you cannot continue to uh, willfully sin. You cannot continue to, uh, to know the truth, to reject it, and live against it. But what do we read in 1 John 1 this morning? we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Sobering, sobering words. But this is what David is reflecting upon as he's looking at creation uh, and seeing the, the, the greatness and the glory of God. As he's looking at the word of God, realizing all that the word is, he is realizing and coming to grips with the need for him to deal with his sin. I would say for this reason, you and I, we must follow David's example and the Lord's instruction here. We have to regularly pray, asking God to show us the secret hidden sins of our hearts. But we have to regularly pray for insight, regularly pray, God, is is there something else here that I'm not seeing? What is it that's motivating me to make these decisions and that's leading to these results? Am I worshiping you as I ought to? Am I worshiping someone or something else? What, what is my uh, controlling desire? To so quote Charles Spurgeon again, he says Secret sins, like private conspirators, must be hunted out or they may do deadly mischief. And it is well to be much in prayer concerning them. So we have to regularly pray against our hidden false. We also have to regularly pray against our presumptuous sins. The the things that we know that are sinful before the Lord, and yet we continue to walk in them, right? We've all probably had uh, uh, an argument with our spouse, hypothetically speaking, where at some point in the argument, you knew that you were wrong, right? But what did you continue to do? You just continue to argue, right? You're like, at this point, I know this is a losing battle, but I'm just, I'm going to continue to fight and battle in it presumptuous sin but when we know that what is taking place is wrong is sinful that becomes high-handed rebellion against the lord and we must pray against that kind of sin i would also say that we can we can rejoice in something in knowing that there is forgiveness for our presumptuous sins and we saw in the old testament there was no forgiveness if you were going to act presumptuously In high-handed rebellion, there was immediate judgment. But the blood of Christ in the new covenant washes away and forgives every single one of our sins. Past, present, future, the ones we know about and the ones we don't know about. The presumptuous ones and the unintentional ones. Can we get an amen for that? There is grace and forgiveness there. But that doesn't mean that we should continue in sin. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? God's people said, yeah, may it never be. We have to keep short accounts with God, and we have to continually pray for Him to reveal our hearts to us. And we have to fight the battle early on at the level of secret sins, unknown sins, praying for God to reveal that if we don't fight the battle there, it goes to a bitter end. Uh, entrenched warfare battle against presumptuous sins in our hearts and our lives. And that's much, much harder to fight that battle. And if we don't fight the battle there, if we give up on the, the trench warfare against presumptuous sins, we fall into apostasy of great transgression, of that serious crime of unbelief and rejecting Christ. We must know what is found in God's word and we must respond to it in faith. Responding to the warnings of God's word by praying against sin. But there is also another way that we should pray. We see this in verse 14 that we should respond in faith to the wages by praying for acceptance. Verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock. And my Redeemer. Now, if we believe that there are wages, if there are rewards for obeying God and His Word, then in faith we should pray and ask God to, to help us obey, to put on obedience. David's knowledge and faith are on display here as we see him praying. Uh, and this is really a prayer for uh, acceptance uh, acceptance being the idea of that which is pleasing to God. Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. I want to be held in favor by you. The, this same word is used at the beginning of Leviticus uh, to describe what the results of the burnt offerings is if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect, and he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And so David prays that his words and his thoughts, as an act of worship just like offering a sacrifice he's praying for his words and his thoughts to be acceptable and pleasing to god that there would be nothing in his mouth or in his heart that would be unacceptable before god david is treating his his speech and his thought life as arenas of worship and he wants each of them to be an acceptable sacrifice and david is seeking to offer back to god what god has already taught to him and proclaimed to him God teaches us uh, how to live and how to act, and then we offer back our lives to him as an act of worship. And this prayer for acceptance uh, with God hits a, hits a nerve in the human heart, right? Because that is, a uh, if, we, if we long to be reconciled to God, that, that question lingers. Right? How can I be acceptable to God? And how can I really, really know that I am acceptable to him? Right, because in our moments of sin, when we've acted presumptuously and sinned, how do we feel? We don't feel acceptable to God. And some of that is, uh, is a, a right feeling because that alerts us that we have sinned. That we have separated ourselves from a holy God. But what we see in this prayer is David is certainly acceptable to God. For David in this prayer, what is he doing? He is humbling himself. He's acknowledging his sin and his profound sinfulness. He says, God, I'm so sinful. There's so many sins I don't even know. You show me where they are. He's expressing his desire to turn from his sin and to turn to God in faith. And his desire is to be pleasing and acceptable to God. This reminds me uh, of uh, Jesus' parable with uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you turn over with me to, to Luke chapter 18, really brief parable. This is the only time that Jesus uses the word justified. And he says it in this context. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what it looks like to be blind to your own sins. That's what we see in the Pharisee, right? What is he missing? His pride. Oh, man. He's saying, God, I'm so glad I'm not a sinner. You see, he points to everybody else around him. But the tax collector humbles himself and says, God, I am the sinner, the sinner of sinners. And what is Jesus' evaluation of these two men? He says, one goes home justified, the other does not. It's the one who humbles himself, who acknowledges his sin that is acceptable to God. That's how you and I can know that we are acceptable before God, that we acknowledge our sinfulness before Him. And we place all of our hope for acceptance in God Himself. Or more specifically, we place all of our hope of being accepted by God uh, upon Christ, the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose again on the third day, that we could be restored and made acceptable before God. some of you might be saying is that really what david is saying there? like i don't see christ mentioned anywhere in psalm 19 right we can turn back there and look again and search for it you're like i'm i'm missing this like where are you where are you seeing christ in this passage well remember as we began our study of the psalms many summers ago psalm one and psalm two serve as the introduction we have to keep them in mind throughout the rest of the Psalms. Psalm 2 ends in this way. Verse 10, Psalm 2. So now, O kings, show insight, take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him right there there is no salvation by running from god the only way of salvation is to run to god that's what psalm 2 was about the nations rebel and they're going to be judged Uh, and we are to take refuge in the son that sets the tone for all of the other places in psalms where we see the type of language that we see at the end of verse 14. 14 where david says oh yahweh my rock and my redeemer well and that uh, at that point in time a rock was a place of refuge when david was running from king saul where did he go where did he go hide in a cave in a mountain in a rock that was a place of refuge he's saying god is that place of refuge And he says oh yahweh my rock and my redeemer the one who has saved me the one who has rescued me. Is David holding himself up as his own rescuer? Saying, God, just help me along this. I can get this. Right? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Just give me the strength and I can be my own redeemer. No. He says, God, you are my refuge. You are my redeemer. You are my champion. You are the one that I need to entrust myself to. You are the one that I must rely and rest in. We must also pray for acceptance before God, but we rely upon Christ rather than ourselves for that acceptance. We, we pray for acceptance on the basis of Christ's person and work, and we pray for the Lord to work in us to transform our hearts and minds. We pray that we would put on holy thinking and holy speaking thoughts and words that reflect a love respect and worship for god that's what david is praying for here and why does he why does he focus there well why does he say uh just guard my actions why does he not say that because everything begins with our inner person with our inner man out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks so he's praying that the same thing as you're going to think internally you're going to speak outwardly It begins in the heart, and out of there, then everything else flows. We need to be convinced of these truths, and we need to respond as David responded. We need to know what God's Word tells us. We need to be convinced that it warns us and that it promises wages for uh, following God. We also need to be convinced and begin to act and appropriate faith, praying against sin and praying for acceptance, not through our own efforts, but because of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. Some of you might, might be here and you might be overwhelmed with your own sin. You might be looking at your life and saying, I don't want to spend too much time looking inwardly. And that can be depressing sometimes, it can be very, very dark, it can be a downer. But I want you to, to think through some of these things. We don't know when David wrote this song, but we know a lot about David's life. When I gave through those, those categories, those examples from Scripture of the different types of sin, I pointed to the Apostle Paul, pointed to the Apostle Peter, and I pointed to David himself. David is writing this, not theoretically, not hypothetically. If he is writing this after his sin with Bathsheba, after his murdering of her husband, I I think he's beginning to, to put some things together. I think he was seeing that he is on the edge, just like King Saul was. And I think he is seeing and identifying the presumptuous sins in his own life. And he's saying, Lord, pull me back. Now, I need you to pull me back. Otherwise, I'm going to tip over. I'm going to fall away. I'm going to commit that great transgression. Some of us feel that way at times, overwhelmed by our sin and our sinfulness. But we need to, to pray. We need to confess and ask God for forgiveness. That's, that's the promise of First John 1, 9, isn't it? If we confess our sins, what is he faithful to do? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness? 50% or all. All of it. Again, past, present, future, known, and unknown. This is the truth of the gospel that we need to echo back to God. We need to pray as David prayed. We need to let the Word of God and the Spirit of God bring about a dramatic transformation in our lives. And it can take place in the life of any and every sinner. No matter how severe your sin has been in the past, no matter how severe your sin is now, And we are called to respond to God's Word in faith. I love the way... A Puritan named uh, Nathaniel Vincent summarizes this psalm. He says, The psalmist was sensible of sin's force and power. And he he was weary of sin's dominion. And he cries unto God to deliver him from the reign of all the sins that he knew. And those sins which were secret and concealed from his view. And he begs that he might be convinced of them and thoroughly cleansed from them. I love this. He says, The Lord can turn the heart perfectly to hate the sin that was most of all beloved. And the strength of sin is gone when once it is hated. And as the hatred grows stronger and stronger, sin becomes weaker and weaker daily. That is really what David is praying for here those sins that once controlled him, that dominated his life and brought about so much heartache. You read through 2 Samuel, you'll see all of the carnage that God brought into David's life from that point on. Some of it was God's judgment and some of it was just the natural consequences. That's where David says, oh, if I had had kept God's word, my wages would be different right now. There would be a different result in my life. Some of us uh learn uh by making mistakes right some of us say well i gotta make that uh let me just go figure it out on my own it's like you can right the, the burned hand teaches best uh, but that's also as proverbs would say that that is how fools need to learn a wise man is able to look and see what's taking place outside of him and say okay I, i'm This is what this person did, and that was the result. This is what this person did, that was the result. Here's now what I need to decide. Uh, And David is here pleading with us, I think, not to make the same mistakes that he made, uh, and is exhorting us, pointing us, begging, pleading with us to turn to Christ in faith, not relying upon ourselves, being convinced of our own sinfulness, that we cast ourselves upon Christ truly and completely.